Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Geek Warning Podcast brought to you by the Escape Collective, the show where we filter through all the latest happenings in the bicycle tech world so you know what's junk and what's not. I'm James Huang here in Boulder, Colorado, and back in Sydney, and fresh from his trip to Adelaide for the tour down under, is my fellow tech editor and resident tool guru, Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hey, James. Uh, Ronan is on the road again, yet again, I should say, this week, so we'll catch up with him on a future episode. We're Actually, Dave and I were just catching up with him a little bit from his hotel room in Abu Dhabi. Uh, it's kind of hard to keep track of where Ronan is these days, but he's definitely in for a long pull away from home, so hopefully he's back home sooner than later. Anyway, we've got a whole bunch of tech topics to talk about today, including the return of Eddie Merck's bikes and the appeal of heritage brands. Uh, the old idea of using straight-up candle wax to lube your chains is new again. Uh, and we're also going to talk about Look's revamped KO Blade road pedals. Uh, we're also going to chat about our favorite shoulder season cycling clothing. We've got a handy PSA about whether you need to break in new tires. And then we've got some other little bits of news from Classified, Wolftooth, Schwabi, Mason, and Hobding. Hmm. Uh, but first, Dave, you came back from Adelaide early for a reason. You came back, you had you had a knee scooter to upgrade, I believe, right? Wasn't that the primary reason you came back? Exactly. Yeah, I got I got the call that uh, my wife had fallen off a wall and and was in need of a, a sick knee scooter. And and I, I came to the call. Uh yeah, so no, I, I came home to play nurse, but uh, since then I've been I've uh, found out there's a whole world of knee scooters which use a lot of bicycle parts, and it's um, I'm definitely more excited about it than she is. <laughs> uh, at, at what point do we pull Ronan into this conversation to see if we can do do some aero optimization? She's not going that fast yet. Uh, I haven't seen a go quite more than walking speed, so I don't think we're at the aero yet. I'm more at the the weight optimization and the rolling resistance. Uh, mm. But uh, it did occur to me that uh, perhaps taking all the, the seals out of the bearings or, or upgrading the bearings so the, the thing rolled more freely um, might not be in her best interest because uh, <laughs> uh, as it is, I think uh, it rolls well enough for the intended purpose. And uh, yeah, I, I kind of uh, imagine a scene out of a movie where someone's trying to hit the brakes and they can't quite slow down. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I I haven't, but yeah, it's uh, I have changed out the grips and you know, put a nice nice flower flower themed bell on there, and uh, I've actually changed out some of the quick release hardware for uh, for for custom cut bolts as well. Um, mm. Just you know, just make it a bit more. Uh, I don't know why I did that actually. Uh, yeah, the the quick release hardware wasn't quite clamping tight enough. So ah, for my, for okay. my Okay. Yeah. It just it just didn't feel as as stiff and secure as I wanted it to when I was when I was trying to do tricks on it. So um <laughs> yeah, anyway. So here we well, are. It sounds like she's gonna be on that thing for a while and my kid's gonna be on a knee scooter again sometime in the next oh, couple no. of months. So oh, oh, it's all planned. That's okay. But uh but you and I are gonna have to compare notes on knee scooter upgrades. Yes. So th maybe yes. this will be a series on Escape Collective. We'll see. But anyway, Very good. Very uh, good. Dave, you did just recently publish another threaded newsletter for people who uh, are listening who maybe haven't yet signed up to get threaded in their inbox. What'd they miss? Uh, they miss threaded. So yeah, please go online to escapecollective.com and find the threaded article. Uh, and yeah, you'll find a link within that to, to sign up for the email. It is free to receive those emails and it just comes straight to your inbox. You don't miss a future episode, but, uh, yeah, the, the most recent threaded was all about the tools of the world tour. So, uh, specifically I looked at some of the, 
the bike sizing tools that they use in terms of uh, getting the saddle height millimeter perfect across all the bikes. Uh, and yeah, some of the, the, the more interesting elements of having to travel with a, a world tour worth of bikes to, to Adelaide. Uh, so yeah, there was a few things in there and plus a few new tools that uh, I got my hands on. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, well, speaking of racing and stuff, if you are maybe looking to immerse yourself in the cobbled classics this spring, uh, Escape Collective members should maybe check out our member summit that we're going to ho- uh, hold for the first time in Belgium the first week of April this year. Uh, a bunch of Escape Collective staff are going to be there as well. We're going to not only check out F- Tour Flanders and Pay roubaix uh, but we're also going to do a whole bunch of bike riding on all the fabled cobbled roads you've maybe dreamed about and seen and uh, read about and stuff over the years. Uh, we're also going to get to ride the Perry roubaix Challenge so you can see exactly firsthand how stupidly hard the Aremberg is. So if you're a fan of the Spring Classics and you maybe got some vacation time to burn, head over to escapecollective.com slash summit for all the details. So maybe we'll see some of you there. I think I think a lot of us are going to be there. We'll see. I think that's still still to be determined. Anyway, with all that out of the way, let's go ahead and get into the news. So first up on my list here, Eddie Merckx, the bike brand that is, not the man. Uh, Eddie Merckx is back, or rather the brand of bikes bearing his name, currently living under the same Belgian corporate umbrella as Ridley, FYI. So uh, Dave, I don't know if you've had a chance to really look at the lineup in detail, but I mean, it's a little confusing, to be honest. Um, you got a couple of mostly carryover carbon fiber road models, like the 525 and the Mendrisio. Um, you've also got the uh, the Pavel all-road bike and the Strasbourg gravel bike. Those are newer for sure. And both of those are also offered in carbon steel and aluminum versions. And then you've also got the premium Corsa, which is a range of steel or titanium road, all-road or gravel frames welded in-house by their longtime fabricator, Johan Brunk, and offered with fully custom geometry. So it's kind of a bit of Old and new, uh, they've got some additional models that they say are going to be coming in 2024 and 25. So it sounds like this is sort of just the kind of just the rebirth of the brand, I'd say, after a several several year hiatus. Um, I, yeah. I I'm uh, I'm going to sound like an idiot on this, but I didn't actually realize that they'd gone away. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> I mean, I think that says a lot about the visibility of the brand because yeah. I, I actually had a conversation recently with an old industry friend who uh, he definitely dropped a little nugget of wisdom on me because uh, one of the things that he was talking about, like we were talking about kind of like uh, like heritage brands and that sort of that sort of thing. And he was saying that in his opinion, there's a big difference between a heritage bike brand and a bike brand with heritage. Hmm. And as of right now, I can't decide yet which of the two this Eddie Merckx brand now fits into. Hmm. Can you can you explain the the meaning of that? Well, I what he was what he was getting at essentially was the idea that if you there, you can on the one hand, if you are a heritage brand, you are a base, you're basically banking the entire identity of the brand on the brand's history. Uh, yep. kind of you know, calling calling to the fore things that were associated with the brand brand name in the past, or like key riders, that sort of thing. Um, sure. Whereas a brand with heritage is a brand that is, you know, at least making an effort to stay up to date with trends and you know modern technology and that sort of thing, but also calls on its heritage for, 
you know, maybe some like company philosophy or like the ethos behind some of the design decisions or, you know, even just, you know, recalling some of the successes that a company may have had in the past on the racing circuit. So, so Pinarello and Colnago would probably be in the latter. That that's what yeah I would say so, yeah I would say okay. so. Um, and then I would say you know even you know a company like Derosa maybe would be kind of somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Uh, and Eddie Merckx again, like I'm not really sure where they're going to settle in yet. It seems like they want to be in that latter category, um, mm-hmm. but if you look at the website, you look at the bikes that they have on offer and kind of their whole company catalog, it, it, it does seem a little disjointed. Um, yeah. It's like you can tell they want to be more, but there's also, also not a whole lot it's of information. Also such a, it's, it's such a tough strategy for them because, I mean, it's in the same house as Ridley. So there's, there's inevitably going to be overlap when you're talking about bikes suited to the Eddie Merckx name, where the Eddie Merckx name actually carries, you know, some weight behind it. And... I think that's that's a tricky one trying to balance two competing brands, uh, and yeah, you can see that they're trying to do that with the the steel bikes and the you know the more classically styled bikes. But I think yeah, it's it's been a it's been a battle for them long term, and it, I, I think that that will continue to uh, exist as a as a struggle for figuring out how how to avoid that overlap while still having um, relevant bikes. So, but yeah. It's it's interesting because like yeah I, I know they went in the they they you know they momentarily appeared in the world tour as a brand and they had Ridley as well in the world tour at the same time and uh, but yeah I, I you know it wasn't that many years ago that I I reviewed a Eddie Merckx steel gravel bike and it yeah I kind of just thought they'd just faded into the irrelevance that you might think they would uh, as to why you know as to why I still thought they were going but uh, anyway they're back and yeah wish them well. I mean, we'll we'll see what happens because, especially, it almost seems like kind of an odd time to announce a return to the industry, given that so many other companies in the industry right now are struggling to sell what they have. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, maybe maybe these are bikes that they had already developed a while ago that there's kind of like, well, we might as well sell them. We got them. I, it's hard to say. Um, yeah. But either way, like you said, Dave, you know, to have both of those very much Belgian bicycle brands under one roof and uh, you know, with seemingly a lot of overlap in products. I mean, what I'm, what I'm really curious about is how Eddie Merckx as a bike brand develops in terms of their brand identity. Because right now, as far as I can tell, unfortunately, they are, in my mind, leaning more into that former category than the latter because it just seems like they're banking on the Eddie Merckx ma- name more than anything else at the moment. Yeah, and... Who knows? Maybe that's enough in Belgium and surrounds. Maybe, maybe. I mean, but you know, man, if they ever brought back like a, you know, the equivalent of a Team SC, but with modern, but with modern tire clearance and disc brakes, I'd be all over that. Oh, that would still, be so cool. That is still one of the best riding aluminum bikes I've ever been on, and that thing's got to be what fifteen years old or so. Anyway, yeah, we'll see what happens here. Uh, moving on, uh, next segment here is seemingly our obligatory segment on chain waxing that we kind of have to talk about on every episode almost. So we've talked a whole bunch about Adam Kieran over at Zero Friction Cycling in Australia, uh, and his, what I think everyone would agree is pretty incredibly deep drivetrain friction testing and lube testing. Uh, regular listeners of Geek Warning will already know that, well, Dave and I, at least, yeah, we're pretty big fans of using wax-based chain lubricants for the way they reduce friction and wear and really yeah. save you quite a lot of money in the long term. Um, Drip or melt on. 
Indeed. Uh, but I'd say almost any time we talk about chain wax, the question pops up as to how well straight up candle wax, uh, like basically pure paraffin, uh, how mm. well straight up candle wax works. Um, so one of the Escape Collective members uh, noted on our private Discord channel the other day that um, Adam hasn't yet published his full report on zero friction cycling, but uh, he did update his charts and candle wax is now in there. So he's in the process of testing that. Uh, and what's really interesting is that, okay, it doesn't do, as you expect, it doesn't do quite as well as like the dedicated wax lubes that are out there, like, you know, uh, molten speed wax and the silica, that sort of thing. Um, all those waxes are kind of specially formulated with different additives and stuff like that. But candle wax still did pretty much better than nearly everything else on the chart. Are we are we talking about? Do you know if he's talking about like just taking a a candle off the shelf and melting it down, or if it, if it's more like golf wax that you'd buy at a supermarket? Uh, it's a little unclear at the moment. Okay. Uh, so he does have it listed as candle wax, and I unfortunately didn't have a chance to contact Adam before we started recording this. Uh, from the time mm. I saw that that he was doing this, um, so he does just have it listed as candle wax. Um, okay. Because it's been known that the golf wax is like is pretty is pretty pure as far as paraffin goes, and it's basically you know kind of the effectively what like the base to a lot of the the commercial melt on uh, wax products are. It's just those have additional low friction additives typically, um, whereas candle wax uh, I think is it's been known for quite a while that that is sort of typically lower quality has a higher mineral oil content. Uh, and historically, Adam's always shied away from suggesting it to people because it it tends to, uh, at the very least, it just tends to not run as cleanly. Um, but yeah, it it will be interesting to clarify that, and I'm sure Adam will in in the near future. And and you know, if if it's if it is candle wax, you know what scent he used. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that's that's also an important element. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm not terribly surprised to see it do so well because after all it's still creating that same protective barrier to the to the chain that you know prevents grit from entering the rollers and uh is still in theory a low friction product uh dave i'm curious have you experimented at all with making your own wax blends using you know starting with golf wax and then adding you know molybdenum disulfide and whatever other low friction additives that you can get pretty readily and pretty economically online I haven't felt the need to because the the few packets of wax I've bought over the years tend to last uh, way longer than the amount of writing I I uh, tend to do these days. So uh, and also these with yeah twelve speed chains and the cost of master links and uh, my fear of breaking master links with twelve speed chains is uh, having me tend to. You know, I'll, I'll wax the chain when it's new, and then I'll, I'll typically just leave it on the bike and use a, a high-quality drip wax lube after that as a top-up lube, and that that's been working pretty well for me. Uh, either way, I find it so funny that um, you know, way back in the day, I mean, this would have been in the let me think about this. This would have been in the early 1990s. So I had a Bridgestone X04 that I loved. That was my 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 daily driver when I was in college. Um, but I had to go with it the 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 printed Bridgestone catalog that was contemporary with that with that model year. So it would have been like 93, 94, I think it was 94 actually. 
Uh, I still have it in my house somewhere. Uh, and I'm pretty sure in that catalog, there were a couple of pages dedicated to waxing your chains and, you know, using mm. the little, the little tin and putting it on the stove and so on and so forth. Uh, I just find it so interesting that, I mean, the chain waxing was absolutely a thing several yeah. decades ago. And yeah. I just find it so interesting that it is a thing again, just with kind of higher tech added in. So, but either way, Grant Peterson, turns out he was right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think yeah, it used to be a thing in in the motorcycle world before that. You know, that's I'm pretty sure where the the bicycle bicycle geeks got it from is uh, early days of motorcycles. But motorcycles, you know, moved to X ring and and uh, O ring based chains where that became redundant. So it's uh, yeah, but it is funny how how uh, things like that repeat and it's it's very much come back. So. Totally. I need, I need to dig out that old Bridgestone catalog somewhere, if only just for entertainment purposes. Uh, <laughs> moving on. Uh, fans of Look Keo pedals, heads up. You've got a new Blade model coming. So th- this was something that Ronan had spotted in the pits at Tour Down Under, so you should check out that gallery. Um, but Look just came out with their official announcement. So uh, not a... Well, Look would argue that these are, that these are pretty massive changes, but uh, it definitely looks a lot sleeker. Uh, it's got user swappable blades, so you can adjust your spring tension a lot easier. Uh, it supposedly has easier clip-in since the the pedals are weighted a little bit better, so it's a little bit quicker to engage without looking at yeah, without looking they now, at it. <laughs> they, they very uh, they very they sit very uh, like all the bikes that I saw at Tudorando. The pedal sits very um, like vertical, so like as it comes around, you can kind of find the the top leading edge of the pedal and 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 bring it round rather than. Uh, chase after it. So yeah, it's very Shimano like. Uh, yeah. But the other things too. I mean, Look has always used a carbon composite body for those, and that there's apparently been some upgrades to the materials because they are supposedly a lot more impact resistant than they used to be, which would be nice if you maybe have a tendency of falling down. Um, there's a new rear latch shape that supposedly extends the cleat life, which is nice. Uh, I, I'm really hoping that it actually reduces the creaking that sometimes goes along with those pedals. Um, and then look also says that they're more durable uh, in terms of the spindles, the new spindle design, new bearing seals, more water resistant grease, that sort of thing. Uh, you'd hope so. You'd hope so. A couple of interesting things. That was though, that, that was that was a real weakness of the of the previous Kios. Um, just yeah, spin like uh, bearing life and right. the inability to do anything about it. So if but they've they sp- but they spun so well when they were new. They spun so well when they're completely clapped out and shaking all over the spindle too, James. But uh, I, yeah, I think if they've improved the bearing durability, that's that's great because yeah, they're not super serviceable. Well, technically, I believe they're not designed to be serviceable. So right, right. Yeah. Uh, well, interestingly, so uh, look talks about how they've got this really wide platform and everything. Uh, but if you look at the numbers, actually, they're not, they're not any wider than they were before, uh, which yeah. I guess would kind of make sense because you can make the pedals as wide as you want. But once you get past the edges of the cleat, there's no point in making it any wider. Um, there's also no increase in surface contact. Uh, no word from look as far as any updates to the cleat itself, uh, although I'd suspect those are pretty much the same. Uh, but yeah. what's, what's really interesting f- from their spec is that they say that there's – they make a big deal about how there's 2% less drag. Oh, like aerodynamically. Two percent less aerodynamic drag. Yeah, mm. that sounds like the sort of figure that you could just pull out of the thin air. It, and, it does. Uh, it does. Yeah, and no one can dispute it. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, they were everywhere at the Um and when I say everywhere, they they actually weren't everywhere because now that I'm thinking about it, uh, I did the ca- I did the count on this yesterday for 
my one of my my bikes of the world tour galleries uh the second that will publish it will be published by the time this podcast goes live uh and within that i've done the count on you know how many riders are on like shimano power meters what brands you know what brands of tires everyone's using what brands of bottle cages are the most popular uh for pedals only two teams are on look which oh is yeah see like james your reaction there your your eyes nearly popped out of your head uh because that I know like last time you were doing race tech as like every second team was on look pedals. It was only a few years ago. Uh, it's quite the drastic swing. Man, and I have to wonder how much of that is due to companies like Shimano and SRAM kind of having a little bit more heavy-handed tactics in terms of their sponsor agreements with various teams. Mm, because especially now with SRAM having ownership of the Time Pedal brand, you'd think that they can have a little bit more leverage in terms of what pedals people are using. Um, Sorry, yeah, corrections look. corner. Only oh. three teams. Three, three. Okay, well, still, three two teams. versus three, that's not a huge yes. difference. If you had said something like eight, that would have been a little yeah. more significant. Yeah. So, yeah, I've got the numbers here for, for anyone playing at home. Uh, 11 teams are using Shimano pedals. Three are on look. Two are on Wahoo Speedplay and two are on time. Wow. My goodness. And if anything, I would suspect that time number will go up in in the seasons ahead too because yeah. there's just no way that SRAM is going to just buy that brand and then just sort of let yeah. them, let them yeah, live fallow. So, so, so it's now Mobistar and Trek that are on time pedals in the men's uh, world tour. More, more in the women's world tour are on time. And uh, yeah, what's what's interesting is that uh, Visma Lisa bike um, – are actually on Wahoo Speedplay pedals. They're using the Aero Zero, despite um, yeah being a SRAM sponsored team. So I would say my guess would probably be they'd be the next one to switch. At some oh point. man! Oh yikes! Well, we'll see. Maybe we'll yeah. revisit this count next year. Either way, like I said, if you are a fan of Look Pedals, you've got a new model to check out. If you are not a fan of Look Pedals, sounds like they're I don't know. Might not be huge motivations to switch, but this does sound like an improvement. So again, let's hope that let's hope that those pedals don't creak anymore. Uh, anyway, let's uh, let's wrap up the news bit of this show right now. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back. All right, it is time for our super fun segment. This is actually one of my favorites that we've got now. Uh, pick one. This is one where we go ahead and pick a product category almost kind of at random. And then we talk about our favorites in that category. Uh, I actually don't know. This might've been Ronan who dropped this into the show notes here because uh, the categories are pretty fun. I'm nervous. I don't know what this is. What? Oh, you yeah. didn't, do, didn't do your research. Uh, <laughs> category for this week is shoulder season cycling clothing. Oh, I think I'm the wrong person to talk about this. I, I just go into hibernation. <laughs> well, uh, for those of you who are might be unfamiliar with the term, we're basically just talking about kind of like like the beginning and end of when the season is kind of crappy outside. Like, you know, talking about late late fall, early spring, that sort of thing. Uh, I do have a couple of selections here that I'm going to talk about uh, for the definitely for the road anyway. I think one of my absolute longtime favorites for shoulder season clothing is fleece bib shorts. Mm. 
I guess your shoulder season is a lot colder than our shoulder season. It is quite a lot colder, but those, I mean, it's funny. So uh, Joe Menzi, he's also with us here at Escape Collective, and one of his favorite items of 2023 was one of the things he mentioned was fleece lined bib shorts, and I was really happy to see that on there because those have definitely been one of my long term favorites for. I don't know, years and years, basically when I found yeah. out about them, however long ago, uh, yeah. just because they're so versatile. Uh, like right now we're in late January. We should be pretty much into winter here in Colorado, but uh, go figure. Today it's like, uh, I don't know, it's like 50 degrees outside and sunny and it's kind of shockingly warm. Uh, Celsius, no, no, sorry, Fahrenheit, not Celsius. 50 degrees yeah, Celsius yeah. would be uncomfortable. <laughs> but, especially in, but those, especially but those, in fleece line bib shorts. <laughs> But those fleece line bib shorts, you can kind of use them for anything. If it, it like if it's kind of just cool, you can wear them by themselves, or you can pair them with knee warmers or leg warmers. You can wear them underneath tights and stuff if you need to be extra warm. Uh, you can kind of use them for just about anything, except when it's just really, really warm outside. They're just so versatile. Uh, and what I always like about those is that because they are still shorts, you can turn them into whatever you need them to be at the time. Um, as opposed to if you have like full winter tights, they're just always full winter tights all the time. Yeah. So for, for Sydney, where I am, um, fleece line bib shorts is like kind of my winter wear with, that I'll pair with with leg warmers. Uh, and I don't actually own full length tights uh, just because that, yeah, as you, as you say, it's more versatile to, to not have that. So I'll often use like, yeah, merino knee warmers and then and then fleece line bib shorts. And yeah, that is a nice pick. I, I agree. They they do make a difference. They're worth investing in, um, even even in a, uh, a climate like Sydney. Hmm. Yeah, the other other favorite piece of shoulder cycling clothing that I've got are uh, lightweight mountain bike trail pants that I'm actually a pretty huge fan of just because uh, those seem to have an even wider range of good temperatures to use them in than, than fleece shorts, uh, just partially depending on what you wear under them, but uh, some of the nicer ones that I've had- What like, do you wear under them, James? Uh, I, I can't, I'm not going to go into that, Dave. It's very private oh. information. Yeah, okay. <laughs> But it, it depends. Like, it depends on depends on the weather. I mean, I'll usually just wear some of my usual like roadie roadie bib shorts underneath. Uh, just I still like mountain biking with a chamois. I know some people don't bother, um, but uh, yeah, depending on what I throw underneath there, like it, it, I've had them be very comfortable up to like I don't know 60, 65 degrees Fahrenheit. So what 16, 17 degrees Celsius, uh, and then down to freezing easily depending on what I'm wearing underneath. And they're just super versatile, and I can use them in so many different conditions. And they're nice and comfy. What's your favorite pair? Uh, favorite ones are probably I don't know what the model is, but they're from Juro. Uh, you know, pretty pretty trim cut. You know, like little laser laser cut vent holes, not too many. Uh, good lightweight fabric, breathes really well. It's got a couple of pockets. Uh, so anyway, yeah, shoulder season clothing. I feel like it's a topic that, you know, everyone talks about summer clothing and winter clothing, but the stuff in between doesn't get talked about all that much, and I feel like we should. Okay, let's rewind a bit. Um, your your fleece bib shorts, what's your favorite pair there? Uh, honestly, kind of whatever I've got on hand, <laughs> because uh, like one pair that I wore yesterday were, were some old Bontrager bib shorts that they've got to be... 12, 13 years old at this point. Mm. Um, but they don't get used that often just because shoulder season is not super long. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I kind of just, I'll just grab whatever whatever I've got. Um, okay. But it also helps too that during shoulder season, I'm not, I tend to not do super huge rides. So, and generally speaking, as far as shorts go, I mean, anything of decent quality is pretty comfy for a couple hours. Yeah. I've got a, a pair of uh, Rafa fleece, Fleece line bibs, and they are a very luxurious feeling. 
Uh, mm. So, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely wash and wear those through the the colder months. Uh, speaking of Rafi, uh, I love Rafa's merino wool warmers. They're, they're arm warmers and knee warmers. I've had them for years. I finally poked holes in, in the knee warmers and I, I bought more to replace them. So, uh, yeah, can definitely recommend them. They're quite, they're quite thin. I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify them as overly warm, but for at least for Sydney climate on the, on our shoulder season, they're, they're absolute, they're, they're quite ideal because you, you don't feel them as much as, uh, as other, many other warmers and, and yeah, they, they kind of do enough to keep the wind off of you. So and they tend to breathe better than a lot of the synthetic stuff mm-hmm. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find them just a bit more uh, natural, natural feeling as well. Less seams. Um, yeah, they sort of tend to go a bit more unnoticed for me. Uh, but unfortunately, they come at a price. So that's that's uh, yeah, it is a an investment. But uh, James, can we talk about the upper body? I feel like people will will be upset if we move on now. Can what what are you what are you wearing on the the upper half? Uh, this is going to be a little controversial. So, I mean, upper body for on the road, I've got a couple pieces. I mean, def- definitely a variety of kind of like wind front best. That's nothing, nothing incredible there. I think, I think my favorite jacket is the or not microclimate. Um, mm-hmm. just because it, have not I have, one. yeah, I, I have found that it has an extraordinarily wide comfort range in terms of temperature. Uh, worn that down to, easily the freezing mark with like maybe like a medium weight jersey underneath uh, and it's actually surprisingly warm. Um, but I was actually just in San Diego last week and it was quite warm there. It was like well into the 60s, so like 16, 17, 18 degrees maybe even. Um, and we were doing some some pretty hard gravel riding. It was quite sunny and definitely warm and sweating a lot, but I never actually took, I never bothered to take the jacket off uh, just wow. because it breathes so well. Uh, so that's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, for mountain biking, though, this is kind of unusual, uh, and this is not something that I grab very often, but this was ages ago. Gore used to make a short-sleeve wind jacket. It's kind of what I kind of like when like went just down to your elbows. It's so odd. Like, it's, it's a very unusual piece of clothing. This is but, like a sleeveless puffer jacket. No, it, it's, it's not kind insulated. kind of in that. It's like when you when your arms are too hot, but you just want to keep your torso. <laughs> yeah, well, but the thing is, so so I use that jacket. I don't even know if you call it a jacket since it only has like half sleeves. But I use that jacket mainly for uh, fat biking here in Colorado, uh, just because there are times, generally speaking, especially at night when, which is when I most often go fat biking up in the high country. Uh, it's obviously very cold. Winter in Colorado is not super toasty all the time, um, but especially when you're fat biking, you are generating a lot of heat. And since only half of your arms are covered, it actually breathes quite well. It, it seems a lot better at temperature regulation in that sense. Um, yeah, this was a tip that I got from, uh, I think this, this was from Lester Binniger over at University Cycles here in town, because uh, he was a big fan of those half sleeve jackets that I don't know where he got his from. He might've actually even just cut off his sleeves, um, but he thought it was a pretty good way to go. And I was like, huh, I do have one of those that I've never worn. So I started wearing it and I was like, ah, oh, well, okay, Lester, you're onto something here. This actually works pretty well. Yeah. Okay. That's not a piece of clothing I have, but uh, well, I n- do, not, I not do surprisingly, have a- yeah. yeah, not surprisingly, Gore doesn't make it anymore, and they only made yeah. it, I think, for maybe one or two years. Interesting. Uh, for mountain biking, I like yeah. Again, not I'm not fat biking in snow here. Uh, I really love three quarter length merino jerseys. 
Uh, mm. So my favorite is like Mons Royale, which is a, a very fancy brand out of New Zealand. Um, not cheap stuff, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've had, you know, I had one jersey. It's probably six years old now and it's still, it's still fantastic. So yeah, it's proven really durable, but yeah, that's got just enough thickness to add a little bit of winter warmth and it's, you know, three quarter sleeves sort of insulate you a little bit more and it, and it, yet again, it still breathes. So, uh, absolutely love that piece for, for, for mountain biking. And then, uh, yeah, I guess for. For gravel, I'd sort of started to use like full length jerseys, but like in a summer material. So again, the sleeves add more heat, you know, keep more heat in, but uh, it still breathes because the, the jersey itself is really thin. So pretty much every brand I can think of offers something like that these days. But uh, yeah, the one I'm using that comes to mind is like I've got one from Attacker. I've got, again, one from Montreal. And yeah, there's a few other brands that, that I've had good success with. But uh but yeah, on that theme, on the road, my my favorite jersey is once again a long sleeve, but in what's pretty close to a summer weight material, um, and that combined with like a almost like a summer or a, a mid weight base layer um, has been pretty perfect as far as like replacing you know uh, what I used to do, which was base layer jersey plus arm warmers. Um, it's just a easier way to get dressed. It's it's much more comfortable when you're on the bike because the arm warmer, you know, you're never having to worry about arm warmer shifting and it's, uh, yeah, incredibly comfortable. So, um, I think my favorite was from a company out of the UK called like Brill Brilliant U- Unicorn, maybe I'll say, but Brilliant Unicorn. That is a heck yeah. of a brand name there. Well, I think it's like Brill Brilliant Unicorn. Um, well, whatever the brand name was, I agree. Uh, lightweight long sleeve jerseys are are definitely a nice uh, another nice shoulder season piece. Uh, a lot of times I find that when it's a little bit chillier, almost all you really need to do is like get the air directly from contacting your skin. Um, like I've got a I've got a lightweight long sleeve jersey from Rafa that that I don't use that often, but there are definitely times when it seems just about perfect, and it's always during shoulder always during shoulder season. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this stuff isn't always inexpensive for sure. Uh, but the nice thing is if you get good pieces and since it's kind of more shoulder season stuff, uh, you know, it doesn't really get that much wear. So it tends to last a pretty long time. So yeah, see, see what works for you. Try it on. Don't, don't be, don't be too afraid to splurge a little bit. It is always nice to be comfy. Um, and, and clearly I've got, I like sheep of, you know, I have a border collie to round, round up all, all the Merino sheep, which I, I tend to wear their, their, their cloths from, but, uh, Merino wool socks, game changer. Mm. I've used them for more than a decade. Uh, yeah, they they are fantastic for, for this time of year. Um, I'm, I'm wearing a pair now. In fact, Dave, like I pretty oh, much wear nice. I pretty much wear merino wool all the time. At least for mm. cer- certainly for socks. Let's move on to our PSA for the week. Um, Going to reach into the members-only Discord bag yet again here um, because there was a pretty interesting conversation or a question, I guess, about the traction of brand new tires. So um, some of you may have noticed that new tires occasionally have this sort of like flaky white stuff that you see on the rubber, uh, or maybe the rubber in some cases looks particularly shiny. Um, so if you're wondering if that may affect the traction of that brand new tire, the answer is maybe. Um, I presented this question over to uh, Luke Musselman, who's the president of Goodyear USA, uh, and he had this to say. So, quote, 
While I can't speak to other manufacturers, the mold release agent may release may result in some excess on the first one or two tires coming out of the mold in that batch, but will become normal after a couple of days of exposure to air. Given that from the time of the manufacturer to initial use by a rider, maybe four to six weeks on the low end, uh, the agent shouldn't be an issue. Uh, it's very common that a tire may not be sold or used for six to eight months after it's manufactured when you consider its movement through the distribution channels. But that being said, tires do break in a little bit, especially uh, the type of tire constructions that you normally find on bicycles, which will result in improved grip after a little bit of riding. Uh, also, he said, uh, quote, some manufacturers may use a waxy agent to give a better outward appearance. You know, sort of like sometimes what you see in like moto and automotive tires. And it may take some time to wear off and impact initial grip. Again, this can and does vary from manufacturer to manufacturer, end quote. Yep. Yeah, my my experience, absolutely, the, yeah, varies brand from brand. Uh, from memory, like, latest Continental stuff tends to be pretty good out of the box. But some of, like, the Schwalbe stuff that I've used in years past definitely lacks full traction uh, for the first few rides. Uh, and I would I would say yeah, just if you if you run your thumb along the tire and it feels slightly slick, then be careful for the first few rides. Don't go full full send into the first corner. Yeah, it is interesting that you never really talk it. Well, you, you really just don't hear about that sort of thing talked about a whole lot because I think it is. I think most people who are listening to this will be familiar with that kind of like white chalky stuff that sometimes comes off of the surface of a tire of a new tire anyway. Um, and yeah, I guess I'd never really thought that much about how much that might affect the traction, but apparently it does. Yeah, so, I remember, I'm, I'm really struggling to remember what the brand was, but there was a time when I was in a shop where I might have even been Bontrager tires, where we used to actually caution customers just saying, hey, your, your tires won't reach full traction for, for the first week, you know, because for us, they, they felt noticeably slick when you, and you'd take them in the car park and you could kind of feel, you could kind of hear them not gripping. Uh, and then they'd they'd come on like you know after probably a ride or two you'd you'd be like okay now now these tires are ready uh, and I, yeah I do remember sort of cautioning customers and I think that might have come off the back of perhaps someone slipping out on a brand new bike um, but my memory's foggy there so anyway yeah it's funny with the uh, you know with what we see now with kind of the rise of these brake bedding in machines every now and then. Uh, it actually got me thinking that maybe that could be like a combo tool where in addition to bedding in the brakes, if those rollers were covered in some sort of abrasive material, like, I don't know, like skateboard deck tape or something like that, mm. uh, maybe you could bed in the brakes and scuff the tires at the same time. Mm. Yeah, you can be like, hey, we, we wore your tires halfway down for you. <laughs> yeah, we took care of the first 100 miles for you. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I think, yeah, it's, there's a few things with the tires is uh, also it's it's less of a thing now with uh, like modern tubeless road tires where the beads are specifically designed not to stretch. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the time tires like the, the carcass of the tire will actually stretch out and uh, reach full volume after a while of use. So like the initial inflated, the initial time you inflate it, the tire is not going to be as, as voluminous as, as it will be later on in its usage. And uh, one way I've heard this from Maxis before is uh, in relation to their mountain bike tires is they recommend inflating to the maximum recommended pressure for and leaving it overnight to help sort of get the tire to its full volume as soon as possible. Uh, and I've yeah, that's something I I always do when fitting new tires these days is, is just yeah, sort of as long as the rim can handle it, I'll I'll inflate like a mountain bike tire to say fifty psi um, and just leave it there and 
uh, and you know let it down for the next ride uh for a road tire yeah be careful because you you don't want to inflate it to the maximum pressure if you're on hookless rims but uh yeah so whatever the rim or whatever is the lower of the two figures between the rim and tire rating yeah yeah but yeah that'll that'll let you get the the full volume and best shape out of your tire as well Hmm. but anyway yeah so just keep that in mind if you know the you know there's that old rule that you don't really necessarily want to switch up and install new equipment right before a big event or a race or something and that may go double for tires so keep that in mind mm-hmm yeah, double for tires also applies for brake pads. You know, don't forget to bed those in. And uh, even chains. Chains won't be at their fastest until you've ridden them for a few hundred kilometers. So, hmm. that's that. That's going to require a level of planning that I fear that I fear a lot of people aren't going to have, Dave. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Anyway, all right. Couple last little bits of news before we wrap up today. Classified, uh, that brand, that Belgian brand that we've talked about a whole bunch of times that has that two-speed rear hub transmission. They've got three new wheels that they just announced, two new road wheels, one gravel one. Um, not really a whole lot to talk about with these, mainly just the fact Basically that new rims, right? Basically new rims, correct. Um, mm-hmm. And it just, you know, I think they're just trying to keep their line up to date. And I think they're, I think this just sort of sends the signal that they still are in it for the long haul and they're definitely in it to grow. Um I'm not even going to bother mentioning the claim weight since the numbers that they quoted don't include the rear hub guts. So uh, it's pretty hard to compare apples to apples here. But uh, point being- But they're lighter. Uh, they are lighter than they were before. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, they still are just kind of on the march. So we're still keeping an eye on what they've got going there. Uh, moving on to more round stuff. Schwalbe, uh, I know we mentioned them just a little bit ago. They had previously had two parallel production lines in Vietnam and Indonesia, and they are now consolidating all of their tire and two production to Vietnam, um, supposedly for logistical reasons, not cost ones. Uh, according to Bike Europe, it's kind of a trade publication, um, mold making, mixing operations and research and development and administration will still remain in Indonesia. But yeah, all the production is going to be in Vietnam. So I'm not sure consumers are going to see much of an impact there. I was surprised to see this news because in my mind, I still thought Schwalbe was manufacturing some of its tires in Germany. Uh, but it seems that was very old information on my part. So uh, anyway, yeah, I don't, I don't believe it'll impact any of the tires in any, in any way. But uh, yeah, that was kind of the biggest surprise of the news for me. Was, yeah. Uh, and I, I saw that news and I, of course, immediately thought that they were doing it for cost reasons, you know, lower cost of labor, that sort of thing. Um, but I actually looked up the cost of labor in Vietnam versus Indonesia. And uh, if, if I was reading those numbers right, Vietnam is actually like slightly higher than Indonesia and has a slightly higher cost of living. Um, so yeah, Schwabi says it's for logistical reasons, uh, not cost reasons. And that may actually be the truth. Either way, uh, kind of an interesting development there. Um Last couple little bits. If you're a big fan of premium workhorse aluminum drop bar bikes, Mason, UK brand, uh, they've got an up- updated definition 3.0 model. So it's still custom data chai aluminum tubing. It's got uh, now updated routing for kind of more modern drivetrains. It's got size specific seat twos, more mounts, still has dynamo routing. Uh, dynamo routing. Uh, it's offered in eight sizes, which is quite impressive, actually, and quite good pricing. You know, it's 1,450 British pounds for a frame and fork. Uh, I've always been a fan of the Mason brand, so it's cool to see that that model updated. Uh, are the hoses through the headset? They are not. Thank oh, God. Good. Okay. Cool. Is is the is the seat post circular? 
It is. It oh, is. well, okay. Oh, win-win. Okay. Yeah, yeah. How about that? Great. Uh, just just having uh just just finishing up my my world tour galleries where I've I've gone through the technical details of 18 team bikes. Uh not a single round post, not a single exposed hose. Uh so I'm, I'm this 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 makes me happy, James. I'm, I'm glad to hear about a bike <laughs> that that is that is now different. I agree. I agree. Different different by being just not changing. <laughs> yeah. Um Last tiny little bit, some news. If you have heard of that, I mean, I'm sure you've seen Instagram videos of the Swedish airbag helmet brand Hofding with the, the little thing that kind of puffs up instantly when you when you crash. The neck brace that turns into a giant, uh, correct, bouncy, giant airbag bouncy hood, jumping castle around your head. Yep. Yep. They have sadly filed for bankruptcy. Unfortunately, it seems like not to me, not enough people signed on to that idea. Mm. Not a huge surprise, I guess. It was. But- cool but very expensive for something that was kind of yeah you'd look at it and you're like surely that can't work like it was easy to be a skeptic of it even though it definitely did do as they claim but yeah i think they were were up against a pretty a pretty big battle because yeah the cost of it was pretty big uh was it a one-time use or you had to send it back for reuse Mm, or something that i don't remember yeah but uh and then there's also just the the helmet safety standards that they had to to meet which is you know they're coming at it from such a wildly different place that it kind of blocked out some markets so yeah sad to see that sort of tech fail but at the same time it's uh not surprising not hugely surprised yeah yeah they, they had a big uphill battle on that one for sure from day one um yeah. anyway it's always a bummer to hear about stuff like that we wish them well uh and finally uh if you got a dropper post on your mountain bike uh wolf tooth big component company out of minnesota that we're a fan of uh they've got their remote pro uh dropper lever remote now available in a variety of anodized colors so that's kind of fun uh, hmm. Dave, you a little comment on this thing about the cable pole ratio in those two? Yeah, yeah. I've I've bought one of these remotes before, and I have it on my trail bike. Uh, it's very it's a very nice remote. It's got all sorts of uh, slidey adjustment features to let you adjust where the the thumb lever sits and how far away from uh, you know inboard or outboard of the the handlebar it sits. But uh, fundamentally, the biggest feature of the the pro remote versus their other remotes is um, it's kind of like the the spool that the cable runs on is. Uh, almost overlized in shape so it changes the leverage ratio so it sort of uh pulls a lot of cable off the first initial push and then it it sort of uh becomes more uh linear after that so it sort of yeah gets the post moving more quickly off the first push and then you sort of can fine tune how high it goes after that um yeah i i really like it it sort of gives you yes it has me having to load up the lever less or push the lever less to get the post going when i want it to so neat uh, yeah it's a very well, very good remote well i think it's safe to say that you and i are pretty big fans of most of the stuff that wolf tooth's got going on over there um well that'll do it for all the last little bits and news that we have on this week's show a uh, couple of reminders so don't forget to sign up for dave's tools and workshop newsletter threaded uh, oh, and you, also don't forget to sign up for ronan's new members only podcast performance process uh, where Ronan's going to dive deep into all the gear and training optimization stuff. You need to go faster. I guess I really shouldn't call that new anymore. It's been around for a little while now. Um, 
We've also got members-only episodes of Geek Warning that will run every other week on top of the regular weekly show that'll include stuff like deeper dives on various tech subjects or super useful Ask a Wrench series where we answer member questions on all manners of tech and maintenance topics. Uh, We'll also have interviews with key folks in the bike industry so you get a little more insight on what's happening and why. So uh, next couple of episodes of the Members Only Geek Warning, I think, are going to be, let's see, what do we have? I think we've got an Ask a Wrench episode coming up later this week. And then I'll have a interesting discussion with someone from Colnago for the next episode. So that, don't, don't miss that one. And then again, if you're a fan of the cobbled classics like the Tour of Flanders and Paris-Roubaix, look into our Member Summit. Should be a pretty fun time and certainly super memorable. And even if you can't make that, I want to remind you that Escape Collective is an entirely member-funded operation, and it's only through the support of you all that we can offer you this podcast or any of the other incredible stuff that we provide here. Uh, If you like what you heard today or just really connected with something you saw on the site, please consider becoming a member. Head over to escapecollective.com slash join and select the monthly or annual option. And if that's still too much to ask, at least do us the favor of heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating and review, or even just tell your buddies about Geek Warning and Escape Collective so that helps more people find us. Mm. That's all I got. That was, that was a lot, James. Uh, it was so a to lot. summarize, it was a lot. sign up to Threaded, forget about the rest, and <laughs> purchase a membership to Escape because it actually lets us create the content. Correct. That is a much more succinct version of all that. Data. Okay, Thank cool, you. cool, 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 cool. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. 